So welcome to this edition of On The Pulse, in which CMS experts provide updates on the key developments bringing innovation and disruption to the life sciences and healthcare sector. I'm your host, Nick Beckett, and today we're continuing to explore the vibrant area of digital health. I'm delighted again to be joined by three of the CMS life sciences specialists who regularly advise clients in the sector. We have Niall McAllister from the UK, Roland Waring from Germany, and Rob Flores from Dubai. So welcome again to all of you. So in the first part of this episode, we looked at the uh, very topical uses of AI in times of COVID, such as in track and trace, and also in the search for a vaccine. We also looked at the emerging regulation of AI and the recent EC white paper as a first step to try to come up with a comprehensive overarching regulation for use of AI, and one that's not been without criticism. And we touched also on liability issues in the use of AI. The EC report on safety and liability complemented the, uh, the white paper, and it shows that AI, you know, being able to continue to learn uh, can end up become, becoming safer over time. But equally, as a hugely complex product and with autonomy, can uh, lead to unintended outcomes from time to time. And with connectivity with other devices, can also lead to um, uh, issues in terms of patient safety. And the, the existing regulation, for example, the EU product liability regulation, doesn't expressly cover the situation of home and, uh, human oversight of AI products. And a key question that remains um, you know, to be answered concerns way, where liability would fall in the case of software. So with all that uh, background in mind and the regulatory frameworks in mind, I'd like then to turn to uh, what we are actually seeing on the marketplace in particular. Are we yet actually seeing much use of AI in practice? So maybe, Niall, you could uh, kick us off with that. Yeah, no, I think we are. Um, so to take the UK as an example, um, we've seen a, a big increase in demand for digital health, particularly in the last couple of years. And that's even before the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, for example, the Department of Health and Social Care published a policy paper in October 2018 called The Future of Healthcare, Our Vision for Digital Data and Technology in Health and Care. And that set out very ambitious plans to use the technology and data to improve NHS and social care services, both for staff and for patients. Um, the guiding principles in the paper included using AI uh, to help diagnose diseases, gain insights into prevention of diseases and using uh, robotics uh, for medication management. And even at that time, it was recognised that one of the problems in our health and social care in the UK is the lack of interoperability, the lack of communication between different technology systems used across hospitals and GP surgeries and pharmacies and community care facilities. Um, and as a result, clearly people are receiving suboptimal care. Uh, and it also leads to, to frustrations for staff in the sector. And from a cost point of view, a lot of resources being wasted. So the policy paper was intended to encourage innovators and technology companies to develop products that addressed the needs identified in the paper, um, including prevention, early diagnosis and treatment of disease, and to try and simplify the landscape for them to work with the NHS, which in the UK is always a big issue. Um, and what's happened since then? Well, teleconsultations have increased and, and really have increased since COVID-19 came along. 
um, and also in particular with older patients, you know, particularly those over the age of, say, 65. Um, and it's not just here. I mean, I think the US and Australian governments have also um, been moving this forward and they've approved reimbursement uh, for telemedicine type digital consultations. And they're seeing similar uptake and, and increase in, in the use of these uh, technologies. Um, so in, in an attempt uh, to reduce unnecessary use of, of health services and to relieve pressure on the NHS, um, the UK government has also introduced a coronavirus conversational chatbot uh, and another AI-driven health app, DoctorLink, adds a triage system. So those are just you know a couple of interesting examples of how digital services and innovations can make a significant impact long term, particularly in health systems that are struggling to meet the demands of an aging population. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think COVID-19, you know, with telehealth and, and digital health apps has had a similar impact on a, on a whole host of different things. It's almost accelerated the acknowledgement that a lot of this this can be done digitally and digital consultations, use of the chatbot, as Niall mentioned. Um, and I think there's just been a, a general acceptance that the use of a digital solution now for healthcare is actually something that's very acceptable. Um, I think there was a recent survey by, you know, research to guidance that, surveyed about 53% of digital health companies, um, sorry, their survey said that 53% of digital health companies expected a, a significant increase in, in digital traffic in terms of consultation and diagnosis. And I think that's on the back of, you know, people being placed on lockdown, people obviously, you know, being having certain concerns about visiting particular health facilities for certain types of problem. So I think COVID-19 has really accelerated this move towards digital consultation, digital digital use in the same way it's accelerated, obviously, digital working and contact with clients digitally. Um, it, it's, it's become a real sort of revolution. So it'd be really interesting to see how that continues to develop and move forwards. To follow on from that, McKinsey and company actually released a report very recently um, highlighting the potential of telehealth. And I think their research in the U.S. found out that, you know, telehealth usage had increased from 11 percent to almost 46 percent over the course of the next year. So it, it is quite an interesting sort of illustration of, of how swiftly this has become a, a very normalized part of, of healthcare. Definitely. And, and uh, we see the same, uh, I think, as in many countries in Germany, telehealth consultations, which have been longly discussed and um have boosted over the recent months by, I think, a thousand percent. Um, it's really, really massive how um, the telehealth consultations are accepted by population and are also um, offered by companies. The new players coming in and also a distinguishing factor for, for um, healthcare providers and doctors. So, and this is coupled from, from a German perspective, very interestingly, with um, the app on prescription that's coming in. So uh, the telehealth services with medical apps and, and, and um, digital health applications, which will soon be available, uh, available um, via um, reimbursement in the statutory healthcare reimbursement system. So, and, and this was a development that started last year, but Corona has really boosted this. And uh, it's, um, uh, we'll, we'll see how it's um, actually accepted in, 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 in reality. 
um, because the criteria, of course, not that easy to get in there. But um, coming back to the report, so the McKinsey report, I think it uh, reality shows that it's really in there and what they found out. And the, the decisive way will probably be um, how to bridge the gap between the actual usage, which, which has boosted, but which is still, of course, not as high as it could be, and the actual um, interest that consumers show in telehealth, in Apple's prescription so um, uh, both from a legal perspective and from a healthcare perspective, a very interesting uh, path that is um, uh, in front of us. I, I think it's worth just touching on the economic impact of this as well. Mm. Uh, and going back to the McKinsey report, um, it estimated that approximately 20% of A&E visits could be avoided if patients relied on virtual urgent care settings instead. And that 24% of office and outpatient visits could take place virtually, and another 9% could take place on a near virtual basis. And on those sorts of numbers, McKinsey estimated that approximately $250 billion of healthcare spend uh, could be shifted to virtual or near virtual care. Uh, and the impact of that on the health system, and, and more generally, and particularly given what we're about to go through uh, post COVID 19. It is really, really material. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think that's such an important point, isn't it? Because the real message from COVID-19, the whole, you know, stay home concept and, you know, the real importance of taking the pressure off the healthcare system, taking the pressure off A&E, taking the pressure off uh, doctors and healthcare workers without patient visits. And, it, you know, it's obvious that telehealth has such a, a huge role to play in that. So sort of Nile rightly touches on the, the cost savings are huge, but also this, you know, this message that's been driven home around, you know, keeping the pressure off various healthcare systems, you know, telehealth has such a huge role to play in that. And I think as a result, you know, if that usage goes up, as Nile rightly says, you'll have the economic savings, but also it, it, it just chimes in with the message that we're all receiving at the moment. That, you know, try and, you know, try and look at other ways of exploring, you know, healthcare needs other than, you know, clogging up A&E and, and healthcare facilities. Yeah, and we, we, we see exactly the same in China as well. I mean, I think it's very strongly promoted telehealth by the by the Chinese government and, and huge savings in time and costs in in A and E in hospitals, um, where they, you know, they lack the triage service, they lack the primary care, and, and telehealth is really filling that that void. I think the other thing we see a lot in China is obviously the big tech companies getting involved. So we call we talk about the bat companies in China, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and I think each of them really developing hugely impressive and, and, and very sophisticated offerings in this space. Um, so uh, you know, I'd be interested to hear in Europe about you know, the equivalent sort of big tech approach. How, what, what are we seeing maybe now? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of no, no great insight, I guess, but it's worth just sort of running through the, the sort of things that are going on. A lot of tech companies are using the, the, the data that they hold uh, to gain really valuable health-related insights and using that to try to break into the healthcare sector. Um, Apple obviously uses the data that it collects from the Apple Watch uh, like tracking heart irregularities uh, across large populations in real time. Um, so that's a sort of wearable tech example. Uh, Microsoft um, uses Azure, which is its cloud platform, to work on a number of projects. Uh, there's one with Novartis, which um, covers 
different types of operations related to drug discovery. Um, and then uh, one that's received a lot of publicity was Amazon's uh, three-way joint venture with J.P. Morgan Chase and Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and that was all about designing healthcare services for staff and improving healthcare organisational efficiency via cloud and computing. Um, so I think it's been recognised that more is going to be needed to make an impact on healthcare. Um, the technology being created needs to work closely uh, with the daily usages of medical practitioners. Um, and much of the technology being developed is, is at the moment still one-off applications. And there's an issue still around integration. Yeah. And what is certainly important um, to bear in mind is that uh, the healthcare and life sciences sector is a specific sector. So tech companies entering this, I mean, uh, the potential is there. The potential is huge. The data amount is huge. But the rules are a little bit different, both economically, but certainly um, from a legal perspective. So, um, for instance, for data protection, for instance, um, the professional um, use of data, am I moving already into healthcare by providing certain services? So this is very important to keep in mind, especially for companies coming from a different um, angle. And it currently also limits the scope of some of the new technologies because these regulatory compliance issues are not um, sufficiently um, yeah, solved. So um, there's been a trend seen that um, uh, technology companies move more into the healthcare sector by also um, um, relying on chief medical um, officers and um, advisors in this regard. In, in order to integrate with the specific needs of the healthcare and life science industry. So this is, I think, a, a, a very interesting and fruitful combination that will probably um, um, provide further input to them and then um, uh, enable them to, to develop further into this direction. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think there's got to be a level of you know integration between what big tech wants to do with some sort of medical expertise provided by people on the ground. But one, I think one great example of where that is really starting to work is the sort of the digitalization of, of healthcare records. So the fact that the big tech companies have been able to work with hospitals, healthcare facilities to create digital patient records that can now be stored on cloud servers, can be accessed very easily by, by doctors, by individuals, by healthcare professionals is a really good example of where, you know, big tech can really advance um, the ability to care for patients and also the ability to, you know, collate, collect and analyze, you know, really important data to help with a whole host of different things. Indeed. And it shows again how, how important data and the new, um, not so new any longer, but uh, still in the current development is um, and it's the fuel of this digital um, healthcare industry. And um, there we see certainly that companies knowing how to yeah, get data, how to store them properly, also from a legal perspective properly, how to use them, how to put them together using AI technologies really have a huge um, advantage and uh, can contribute a lot to um, the advancement of this technology, training AI tools, and um, achieving better results. So this is an area where we see um, quite a lot of um, yeah, potential for the, for the tech companies, whereas the traditional pharma and med tech companies 
um, uh, come from a different angle, of course, and uh, um, get more um, more um, uh, yeah knowledge in this regard um, step by step. And um, what will be certainly important in the years to come is uh, the strength to draw on data reserves, strength to do, draw on data being collected, as you just pointed out, uh, pointed out Rob, and also by um, electronic patient files. And basically um, what we've seen in the past is that the companies not traditionally coming from the healthcare and uh, life sciences sector more moved into the operational rather than the clinical sphere. So organization of medical service centers, um, operational planning, staffing, and information flowing, and um, several players having um, provided statements on that. Inter Alia, the chief medical officer of Amazon Web Services, recently said this will be the next phase, coming from the operational side more to the clinical side, and uh, where we'll see a lot of um, lot of development, including AI services and telehealth services um, that will bring the healthcare system forward, I think. And again, looking at this from the UK um, and, and at the operational side of healthcare, um, we can see the NHS working with tech companies uh, regularly, people like Microsoft, Amazon and Palantir. And they're developing data models to optimize allocation of hospital beds or staff or ventilators. Uh, mm. So, yeah, very much uh, making advances on the perhaps less sort of healthcare sophisticated side of things and, and the areas where tech companies already have real strengths. Um, and I think, you know, if if data privacy restrictions uh, are loosened a bit, um, then that can lead to sharing data more seamlessly uh, and therefore improving efficiency uh, around things like digital prescriptions, um, patient data exchange and Patient selection and enrollment in clinical trials, which I think is you know a real a real opportunity uh, to inform and, and narrow down and therefore improve the cost effectiveness of those trials. Um, and breaking down data silos then facilitates innovation uh, in both digital health and in AI. Um, and you know we've seen this in the EU integrating data across member states. Um, we've seen it in the US, uh, which is enabling data to flow more easily between the Medicaid and Medicare programs. Um, so while technology may be used in the future to help doctors with diagnoses, the technology, I think, isn't there yet. Um, and even if it becomes sufficiently advanced, um, systems you know, in the healthcare space uh, mightn't be able to process the sort of volumes of data flow that's going to be gathered by all these new technologies, which I think is an issue um, you know, that we're going to have to think about. Uh, so the greater the level of harmonization between AI, big data, healthcare systems, um, and, and winning the trust of the public and you know, the regulators as well, it is going to be very important. Um, and, and you know, while we sort of focus on these technological issues, it's important to remember that AI and digital health it also requires human insight. Uh, it requires people with experience of AI tools um, you know, to promote and develop the optimal medical and health solutions. So maybe finally, um, just interested to hear what your advice, all of you would be, maybe just one, one piece of advice, each of you for you know, companies operating in the sector and how they can best deal with the challenges. Roland, do you wanna kick off? 
Yeah, I think um, thank you. I think um, data is the key. Um, as I said, uh, it's a bit of, or it's the fuel um, of the technology. Getting unbiased and high quality data will probably be um, a very large portion of the success. It comes with a lot of legal um, challenges, how it's stored, how it's used, and how it's fit into the regulatory framework. But I think um, this uh, this is an important point. And combined with certain human oversight in order to um, to incorporate in the AI system in order to avoid that it's um, yeah um, uh, not uh, working uh, in the regulatory framework properly. I think that's the, these two aspects would be very important from my point of view. Yeah, I think um, I'd kind of focus on the people. Um, I think you know it's really important to have the right team and to have the right skill sets in place within the within your organization. And, and if you look at big pharma companies like Novartis and Sanofi and, and Pfizer, they now have digital experts on their teams all the way to the top, all the way to board level. On the other hand, when you look at the big tech companies, they now have chief medical officers on their staff, which they never had before. And that enables them then to incorporate and integrate the sort of human factors that they weren't thinking about in the past, but that are really important if they're going to create the sort of services tailored to medical settings, you know, away from just the tech scenarios that they're used to. Yeah, so, I mean, I'll come very much from the tech side of things. And I think it's all about sort of data and integration. Um, so it's that, and, and Niall touched on this earlier, it's this ability to be able to share this hugely valuable data um, across sort of multiple entry points with multiple organizations that will drive drive analytics uh, and drive the ability to improve treatments and also look for coveted vaccines in all sorts of different areas. But I think what has been touched on, and, and Roland brought this up as well, is this this kind of conflict at the minute between, you know, getting user buy-in to the use of this data for those purposes. So I still, particularly in the Middle East, there's, there's still a fear about patient data being transferred out and, and being used for different purposes. So I think there's still a, a bit of a discussion to be had around that and the importance of that. And, and it may well be that COVID moves that discussion on a little bit. And then finally, I guess it's all about, you know, the integration of these solutions with, you know, primary care. Um, I think people are obviously still vital to the delivery of healthcare services. So it's about kind of trying to do this in partnership so you don't have an all tech-based solution or an all people-based solution, but you get the best of both worlds and how that can be managed in terms of both sort of regulation and integration um, to really drive the best possible result and also get sort of patient buy-in um, to achieve, you know, what is best for the patient and, and the particular company looking to, to integrate the solution. So really fascinating discussions. I think there's definitely a blurring of the divide between the, the digital and the health parts of the industries. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry evidently having digital experts now in its sort of higher echelons and the, the tech part of the industry having chief medical officers in its higher, higher management. So um, lots of uh, learning to go on. And I think more collaborations can be expected. No one has all the answers. So there's definitely a need for a sharing of skills and resources and infrastructure and talent. And in terms of the future, I guess we can expect more informed, more engaged patients, uh, more use of social media and patient networks, and more um, uh, healthcare initiatives and uh, uh, consultations happening via 
uh, video and uh, using smartphone technology and probably prevention uh, used using wearables as well. So I think with all these sort of exciting developments and benefits, there also come risks and the regulation needs still to be mapped out uh, to ensure patient safety and also to protect uh, you know, patient privacy and confidentiality. But for now, thank you all. And uh, thank you for joining us for this edition of On The Pulse. We hope you found our discussions to be thought-provoking and insightful. If you'd like to discuss any of the topics covered, please do get in touch. And to find out more about On The Pulse and CMS's Global Life Sciences and Healthcare Group, visit cms.law. Audio versions of On The Pulse are available through your usual podcast store.